Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this.
Moods and Modes, episode 13. And I'm not superstitious about the number 13, but it's fitting that today's episode does concern misfortune. And of course, I'm talking about the shocking, out of nowhere loss of one of the greatest musicians of all time, in my opinion, and many others. Of course, I'm talking about the great pianist, composer, band leader, innovator, electronic keyboardist, educator, person beloved by those around him and an inspiration to them and many, many more, including yours truly, Chick Corea. Now, the reason I describe his loss as shocking is that it really took everybody by surprise. This is somebody who, at least publicly, had no health issues, not the usual demons that so many musicians have. In fact, he's always seemed glowing and healthy, and uh, he seemed very ageless, full of energy and vibrancy, very active, uh, very active online, which I'll talk about more in a bit, just at the top of his game. Now, the late great pianist Bill Evans, a true giant of jazz piano and a big inspiration for Chick Corea, he once said that there are those who are naturally talented and those who have to work on it, and describing himself as somebody that really had to work on it and didn't have that much natural talent. I think most would beg to disagree. However, uh, Chick Corea seemed like he had natural talent in abundance, yet also worked on it constantly, never stopped, tirelessly working at his craft and sharing his process with the world. As recently as this past holiday season, just over two months ago, his Instagram page has been this treasure trove of video clips and photos, a constant stream of samples from recent concerts with multiple bands, large ensembles, small combos, trios, duos, solo pieces, not to mention lectures and masterclass appearances, taking questions from aspiring musicians, offering simple inspirational words, sharing classic photos and new photos, even selfies. All of it was fun and playful, as though he was talking about the craft of comedy, yet with the depth, artistry, sophistication, and skill of the highest level of the most respected philharmonic musician, painter, sculptor, ballet dancer, or any other preeminent figure of fine arts. Then on February 11th, this post, the final post on the page. It is with great sadness we announce that on February 9th, Chick Corea passed away at the age of 79 from a rare form of cancer, which was only discovered very recently. Throughout his life and career, Chick relished in the freedom and the fun to be had in creating something new and in playing the games that artists do. He was a beloved husband, father, and grandfather, and a great mentor and friend to so many. Through his body of work and the decades he spent touring the world, He touched and inspired the lives of millions. Though he would be the first to say that his music said more than words ever could, he nevertheless had this message for all those he knew and loved and for all those who loved him. Quote, I want to thank all those along my journey who have helped keep the music fires burning bright. 
It is my hope that those who have an inkling to play, write, perform, or otherwise do so. If not for yourself, then for the rest of us. It's not only that the world needs more artists, it's also just a lot of fun. And to my amazing musician friends who have been like family to me as long as I've known you, it has been a blessing and an honor learning from and playing with all of you. My mission has always been to bring the joy of creating anywhere I could and to have done so with all the artists that I admire so dearly. This has been the richness of my life. Unquote. Chick Corea was born on June 12, 1941, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and grew up near Boston. He was born Armando Anthony Correa, after his father, Armando Correa. And it is said that his lifelong nickname came from a relative, probably an aunt, who would pinch his cheeks and call him Cheeky. And it became Chick. I'm going to read from a book called Jazz Rock Fusion, The People, The Music by Julie Coriel and Laura Friedman. This is a long out-of-print book from the 70s. I think it may have been reissued at some point, but um, my version is falling apart. It's in tatters. It was when I bought it, but it's very valued, and it's got amazing photos and interviews with um, so many favorite musicians in their prime in the 70s. And Julie Coriel was married to Larry Coriel, who's no longer with us, but a very influential guitarist, composer. Quote, Chick began studying classical piano at age four. His father, Armando, a jazz trumpeter, bassist, composer, and arranger in the 1930s and 1940s, provided Chick with early direction. Chick played at country clubs with his father around Boston and Cape Cod while still very young. In high school, he worked with several bands and was thus introduced to Latin music, which remained an integral part of his own music. After finishing high school in 1959, Chick moved to Manhattan to attend Columbia University. He returned to Boston after two months and spent eight months preparing for a Juilliard audition. Once at Juilliard, he became dissatisfied with his formal studies and left to pursue a full-time career as a professional musician. Unquote. Then it goes into some details about his career, which we're going to get into, and we'll do some listening. We may come back to that great book, but first I want to quote from Downbeat Magazine and the obituary, which has uh, the following sentence, quote, it's quite possible that no jazz musician ever conceived, composed, and or performed with more top-notch bands than pianist, keyboardist, composer Armando Anthony Chick Corea, unquote. Now I'm skipping down to the next paragraph, quote, Corea once said of himself, and this is quoting Chick, I was and still am a blotter for creative music and new ideas in music, unquote. And reading on in the paragraph, he created a hybrid vocabulary all his own that embodied a global range of reference. Bach and bebop coexisted with Bartok and the blues, Mozart and Montunos, Ravel and rumba, Stravinsky and samba, all tempered with the Spanish tinge. He was master of his instrument, 
able to caress a lyric passage with the delicacy of a bel canto singer or articulate a wide array of grooves with the precision and grace of a tango dancer. His hands were completely independent, and he tossed off fleet embellishments with no apparent effort, though he never showed off, never deployed his enviable technique as an end unto himself. In any context, Korea was above all a musical storyteller deploying whichever keyboard he used as a sound carrier, a tool of his imagination, unquote. Isn't that great? That's by Ted Pankin on February 11th, 2021. Now I'd like to get a little bit into what first drew me to Chick Corea's music without making this too much about myself. For one thing, he dispelled of the notion of jazz piano as quote-unquote cocktail music. How many films or TV shows have you watched in which a scene takes place with folks sipping cocktails, chatting, perhaps a minor plot twist happens, and in the background there's jazz piano, either on the stereo or even a piano is there and they've got somebody playing. Perhaps you've been to such an office party or happy hour yourself. Or maybe you've stayed in one of these hotels that has a piano in the lobby. You might have even enjoyed brunch while some piano player cranks out versions of Moon River for tips as the waitress goes around refilling glasses of Bloody Marys and mimosas. The point being that Chick Corea's music is not for the background. It's not for sipping cocktails. It is a listening experience. It was some of the first jazz piano music to use that very limited term that does not do justice to Chick Corea that I recognized as such. Now, can you imagine if the band playing brunch or cocktail hours started doing this? I think people would be running out. I love it. This is from an album in 1968 called Tones for Jones Bones. It was Chick's debut as a band leader. Now, this being 1968 and coming out on a subsidiary of Atlantic Records, the cover art looks more like it's for the Mamas and the Papas or Jefferson Airplane. In other words, I think it's a bit of a mismatch. Chick never had art like this again. <laughs> it's very psychedelic. It kind of brings to mind Peter Max, who did the Beatles art, or a poster from Woodstock, or the Summer of Love, or uh, one of those Bill Graham Presents posters for a rock concert at the Fillmore. However, the Fillmore would be in his near future, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, again, that's from 1968's Tones for Jones Bones, Chick Corea's first album as a leader. However, it was not his first recording. He had been recording as a sideman since the early 60s. And just as a reminder, we read in the Julie Coriel book that he came to Manhattan to attend Columbia University, but left after two months and decided to prepare for Juilliard. So he goes home to Boston, spends the better part of a year prepping for his audition. Now, he's Chick Corea. It's a short subway ride from Columbia to Juilliard. You'd think he'd just head down and ace it, but um, he wanted to be ready. 
Similarly, he waited until the late 60s to do an album of his own after getting as much experience and paying as many dues as he could performing live and in the studio. Uh, One thing you could never accuse Chick Corea of is not being prepared. Now, it's not hard to draw the conclusion that prior to 1968, Chick Corea may not have felt ready to become a band leader just yet. However, some of the band leaders whom he worked for seemed to have felt differently. They recognized his greatness, understood they were dealing with a giant or a future giant, and did what they could to lift him up, so to speak. One early and noteworthy example of this is the trumpet player Blue Mitchell, who was known for his work with Horace Silver. Horace Silver had had some very successful albums at the time. If you've ever heard Song for My Father, that was pretty well known. It was a big influence on Steely Dan, who borrowed the song. Listen to that song next to Ricky Don't Lose That Number. (laughs) There's one part. It's the same part. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that at this time... There weren't that many integrated bands, right? You had Miles Davis, who'd brought in Bill Evans, who was mentioned earlier, who'd played piano on Kind of Blue, and Miles got a lot of heat for that. It was a major scandal. I'm going to try to explain this delicately, but in the 1950s, things were very different. Racial tensions were high. Being black in America was incredibly difficult. Not that it's easy now, but it was even worse then. Miles Davis had defied all odds and become one of the most successful artists in America, black or white. So a spot at his band was considered this prime opportunity for black musicians. That's why people were upset. It's not because they didn't like white people, even though it gets spun that way. It's so stupid. Either way, they had the small consolation that Miles had also brought in the great Winton Kelly to play piano on a few songs on that album. So not too many years later, Blue Mitchell gives the piano spot in his band to this white kid from Boston with a funny name. Not only that, they go in the studio to do a high-profile recording for Blue Note Records, and there's no Winton Kelly or other second pianist brought in to balance things out. Just check. Blue Mitchell is so impressed with Chick, in fact, that he includes one of Chick's tunes as one of the five compositions on this record. That's almost unheard of for a sideman who's only been recording for a couple years at this point. It's called Chick's Tune. Let's check it out. Now, a few years after working with Blue Mitchell, Chick was hired by Stan Getz. Stan Getz had been a very respected saxophonist in the jazz world. However, he'd recently crossed over into pop star level record sales thanks to his collaborations with uh, Joao Gilberto and his wife Astrid Gilberto, who did the original Girl from Ipanema, composed by Antonio Carlos Yobim. This helped launch the bossa nova craze in the 60s. Now, this music originally had a lot of sophistication and talent required, but that was overshadowed by its popularity with tourists and particularly visitors to tropical destinations. Here's some of the music that Stan Getz was popular for. I'm going to order a cocktail. Miss, can I get a margarita? Salt on the rim, please. Cancel that. Make that a mojito. Make that two mojitos. 
Okay, I'm having fun here. I'm not making fun of the music. Just so you know, I am. I deeply respect the music. I'm making fun of the culture that sprung up in the wake of the music. So it's understandable that by this point, Stan Getz is so identified with the Bossa Nova movement, which has been adopted by popular culture and Hollywood and has experienced tremendous commercial success, that he feels the need to get back into improvisation that is artistic, void of commercial consideration. And he brings on this young piano player, Chick Corea. And like Blue Mitchell, he has him as a composer as well as a pianist. This time with three songs. Here's a bit of one of them, Letha. It's that same warm, rich tenor tone that unmistakably Stan gets, only this time he's reasserting himself for serious listeners on a canvas created by Chick Corea. So this is 1967, which brings us back to the year Chick's debut came out as a leader, Tones for Jones Bones. And something else very important happens. Chick records with Miles Davis for the very first time on an album called uh, Fille de Kilimanjaro, which means the girls of Kilimanjaro. And this is a landmark recording, not because it's one of Miles Davis's best-known albums or one of his best-selling albums, not by a long shot. He would have one of those a couple albums later with much of the same personnel, including Chick. But the reason this album is important for fans of Miles, fans of Chick, and fans of music, period, is that it, it is one of those links. It marks the end of one era and plants the seeds for the next. In that sense, it's a little bit like a revolver for the Beatles or hemispheres for Rush. In all cases, a big development and change in sound is about to take place. My fellow guitarists should take note that this is the moment the guitar enters the world of Miles Davis and by association, Chick Corea. Although in both cases, not literally yet. That will follow. Let me explain what I mean by that. Miles had just discovered Jimi Hendrix. They become friends and were introduced by the funk soul singer Betty Mabry. Miles had just married Betty Mabry, 20 years his junior, and she was on the cover of Fide Kilimanjaro. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. In just one year of marriage, she influenced him greatly by introducing him to the fashions and the new popular music trends of the era and introduced him to guitarist Jimi Hendrix and funk innovator Sly Stone, planting seeds of his future musical explorations. So the track I'm going to play is important for a few reasons. It marks one of the first times Chick is playing the electric keyboard. Um, it was called the Electra Piano back then, a keyboard instrument that created piano and harpsichord-like sounds using transistors like combo organs of the day. So it was listed as the RMI Electra Piano, RMI standing for Rocky Mount Instruments. 
The song is called Mademoiselle Mabry, named after the aforementioned Betty Mabry. And while it doesn't have guitar, it is based on a song by Jimi Hendrix. See if you can guess which one. Did you guess which Hendrix song that's based on? If you guessed this one. You'd be right. That's uh, Jimmy's The Wind Cries Mary. Most people probably know that. And uh, how cool is it that Miles gets Chick to play a riff by Jimmy? So the next thing that happens, Miles's guitar appetite is whetted. He wants guitar. Not only that, he wants electric guitar, which is pretty radical for Miles Davis at that point. So uh, the bass player in the band, Dave Holland, who plays both upright and electric, recommends the best, most cutting-edge guitarist he knows, his old flatmate, fellow Brit back in London, John McLaughlin. Probably don't need to mention who John McLaughlin is. He's been mentioned enough on this podcast. Obviously, he went on to be a giant himself. But at this time, John McLaughlin jumps on a plane, flies to New York, and finds himself in a studio on 30th Street in Manhattan, along with Miles, Wayne Shorter, Chick, Herbie Hancock, Joe Zawinul, Dave Holland on electric bass, and Tony Williams. So you've got Chick, Herbie, and Zawinul all on electric piano, you have Dave Holland on electric bass, John McLaughlin on electric guitar, and horns and drums. That makes this the first electric jazz album, or the first fusion album, you might want to call it, or the first jazz rock album. Here's a little bit of it. It's called In a Silent Way. It's so interesting to hear John McLaughlin here. We know him now for playing these blinding flurries of notes. I think he's being tentative because you know, Miles is listening. When Miles listens, you've got to be on your toes. So again, In a Silent Way was technically the first jazz rock fusion album. But it was the follow-up to that, Bitches Brew, which became one of Miles' biggest selling albums, his highest charting album, his first gold album. The lineup would shift slightly from In a Silent Way. Tony Williams wasn't on this one. Instead, two drummers were brought in, Jack DeJanette, who would become a giant, and Lenny White, whom Chick would later recruit for his own jazz rock project, Return to Forever. The Bitches Brew lineup had one less keyboardist as Herbie Hancock was off working on his own electric jazz music with the Headhunters, who would become incredibly successful. But it was augmented by additional musicians, including several percussionists, one of them being Ayrto Moriera, who would also join Chick in Return to Forever. Now, I want to get to Return to Forever. I'm sure some of you want me to get to it, and I will. But I want to talk about a tour that happens in between the release of Miles' album Bitches Brew in 1970 and the formation of Return to Forever in 1972, at least uh, Return to Forever 1.0. 
the tour is a rock tour. Remember I mentioned the Fillmore earlier? So at this point, they're playing rock venues. The uh, album is having rock sales. They're opened up to rock audiences. It's a smash hit. And a live album comes out of this, uh, a collection of Fillmore performances, Miles live at the Fillmore. And there's a couple uh, musicians on there that weren't part of the Bitches Brew sessions. One of them is Keith Jarrett. And uh, he sort of brought in to replace uh, Joe Zawinul as the second keyboardist, along with Chick. He's playing an electric organ. And at this point, Chick is playing the Fender Rhodes piano. It's brand new at the time. It will become his signature instrument and his main vehicle in Return to Forever. So let's hear a little bit of Chick on the Miles Davis Bitches Brew Tour from the album Live at the Fillmore. It's interesting, Keith Jarrett is playing this electric organ that almost occupies a guitar-like space. It's got this added distortion and almost a wah thing happening, whereas uh, the Fender Rhodes that Chick is playing is smoother. Listen to how they interact with each other. Two of the greatest acoustic piano players of their generation rocking out with Miles Davis. They both reacted to this tour differently. They both spoke of it fondly, but afterwards, Keith Jarrett almost never touched an electric or electronic instrument again and stuck with acoustic music. Chick would take the Fender Rhodes and keep it with him the rest of the career, but his, his very next project, first lineup of Return to Forever, definitely had a less dissonant and softer flavor. Now, some of the later versions of Return to Forever would certainly capture some of that Miles at the Fillmore energy, particularly the versions with Al Dumiola on guitar. But first, there was Return to Forever 1.0 with no guitar. Being a guitarist myself, it might surprise you to learn that this is my favorite version of Return to Forever, with all due respect to the later versions. I'm just very partial to this early lineup. So let's just hear a little bit from the album simply titled Chikoria Return to Forever.
What a wonderful melody. This is not Chick's most complex tune. It's pretty much one vamp, but that doesn't matter. It captured something. It captured this incredible energy and atmosphere that I think is very specific to this lineup. This brings us into the half hour zone. This is a good time for a short intermission and brief housekeeping. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. First of all, welcome to the episode. Welcome new listeners and welcome back continuing listeners. Uh, it's been great to hear from so many of you. The Rodrigo y Gabriela episodes got some wonderful feedback. That was nice to hear. And there is an episode coming up that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, a true legend, capital L, is going to be joining us on the podcast. I did not expect this at all, but it happened. It's probably going to be the next episode, and there's no way I could drop hints without giving it away, so I'm not going to say anything. Just uh, stay tuned, pun not intended, and I'll just uh, confess the timing of these episodes. I'd imagined them being done a little sooner. Somehow, I'm keeping incredibly busy as a musician, even though I'm not traveling. I just performed for uh, the Iridium that was the home of Les Paul right up until his passing, a great venue in New York. They're starting to get things going again. We did a live streamed show and uh, that's going to be broadcast online. That's with my trio, Alex Skolnick trio. And then a bunch of projects, a bunch of very cool uh, collaborations. One I recently did was um, Maybe I'm Amazed by Paul McCartney with uh, members of Smashing Pumpkins and Third Eye Blind and Beyonce. I know that, not Beyonce herself, but a member of Beyonce. <laughs> I know that sounds strange, but it, it's getting some great response. Uh, check out the post on any of my pages, at Alex Skolnick. And then there's another one. Um, I can't say what this is because they have not announced what it is, but it's going to be coming out on Ground Up Records, and it involves uh, the band Fork, F-O-R-Q, which is members of the super ensemble Snarky Puppy. They were kind of a global phenomenon. Look them up. And I was honored to be brought into this along with a bunch of other artists, including folks I admire like Jason Lindner, Becca Stevens, Zach Danziger, Tim Lefebvre. But I can't say what it is. They've only put out a meme with all our names saying that they can't say what it is either. So I'm sorry to be so vague. Uh, let's just say that some very cool stuff is coming up. You will find out everything soon. And uh, let's get back to paying tribute to the late, great Chick Corea. So when we left off, Chick, inspired by his time with Miles Davis, had decided to form his own jazz rock project. Return to Forever, a group that would go through many incarnations and become a seminal group in the canon of jazz rock, along with Weather Report, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, Tony Williams' Lifetime. 
And it's kind of incredible to think that all of these groups stemmed from the lineup on Miles Davis's In a Silent Way. So Return to Forever 1.0 recorded that debut album we heard a little bit of, and they immediately followed it up with an album called Light as a Feather, which contained the song that would become Chick Corea's signature song and probably his most recorded composition by himself and others. So I'm going to play a little bit of the alternate take of this composition. Check it out and listen to what happens at the very end. I love that they kept that on the recording. I think that's uh, Lenny White or Stanley Clark that says, let's play it faster, obviously being sarcastic. And Chick says, that's too fast, admitting. Although they sound so good on that. That's one of my favorite versions of the song. So the song is Spain, and there's much to say about this song. So it's around this time that Chick makes this deep connection with the music of Spain, specifically guitar music, flamenco and classical guitar from Spain, which is kind of interesting for a jazz pianist, but he feels a deep connection to it. You would think he's Spanish, even though he's 100% Italian. He even does an album called My Spanish Heart. And there are many examples of it throughout his music that will continue for the rest of his career. I'll play you a few later on, but certainly the most noteworthy one and the most signature piece is Spain. Now, one thing not everybody realizes is Spain is spun from a guitar concerto, a source of pride in Spain, a classic by uh, a composer named Joaquin Rodrigo. Now, once the Latin groove starts in Chick's tune and uh, you hear those familiar melodies, those are Chick's melodies. But the introduction to the tune always starts the same way, and it's actually a direct quote of Rodrigo's composition, the second movement, the Adagio. Let's hear how it starts um, on the Chikoria version, the one I just played you, beginning of the song.
And it goes on for about twice as long before the full band comes in and it goes to that up-tempo Latin rhythm. Let's hear a proper classical version of the tune. This is the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields with uh, Pepe Romero playing the guitar part on uh, Concerto de Aaron Wes by uh, Joaquin Rodrigo. That goes on for a while. That's a very beautiful piece. You should hear the whole thing. There are multiple movements. The Concerto de Aaron Wes. So the way Chick Corea tells it, uh, before he heard the uh, original, a, a classical version like that, he heard Miles Davis's version. Miles did a landmark album in the 50s uh, with a large ensemble and help from arranger composer Gil Evans. And the album was called Sketches of Spain. And they took on that same movement from Concerto to Aaron Wes. So that was the first time Chick had heard it. Uh, let's play a little bit of the Miles Davis version right now. Uh, so beautiful. The Miles Davis and Gil Evans version of Concerto de Aaron Wes from Sketches of Spain, an essential album. And uh, the source of inspiration for what would become Spain, the Chick Corea composition. So another reason it was so shocking to lose Chick the way we did was he was so active um, on Instagram. He would do this wonderful series called Ask Chick. Here's a clip about composing Spain. He says it right, by the way. Daranwes. All right, Chick. Isabel9595 asks, what inspired you to write Spain? Oh, okay. Uh, all right, Isabel. Uh, let's see. Short answer for that is uh, really Conchero de Aranquez. There's a piece written by uh, the great Spanish composer uh, Joaquin Rodrigo. It's called Conchero de Aranquez. And uh, on, on a Miles Davis recording called Sketches of Spain, Miles Davis did a piece arranged by Gil Evans, which was the second movement of this three-movement concerto. It's a guitar concerto. <clears throat> and I listened to that uh, with Miles and Gil, which is one of my, actually one of my favorite rec recordings. And this theme captured me. It's well known. Thank you. 
and then it goes on from that. But this last cadence where it goes. I remember that. And then I, and then I, I wrote some melodies. I forget how it came about. I, I wanted to put it into a rhythm, so I went. writing because I wanted it uh, to be uh, an uplifting tune and uh, but that was the inspiration it was Miles Davis and Gil Evans at first and then Rodrigo's great piece isn't that cool so these clips for hashtag ask chick on Instagram were done uh, in dressing rooms all over the world on recent tours he would always end with a thumbs up and a smile and you could tell he was just really enjoying himself and getting into it. Um, usually these are in uh, backstage dressing rooms, but sometimes hotel rooms. He's always got a portable keyboard, uh, occasionally a real piano. And it's um, so great to see him in this casual setting. So informal. There's snacks laying around. And sometimes uh, you know he's a little weathered because it's in between sets. And um, I even heard him make a little mistake there, <laughs> but it didn't matter because he was talking at the same time. You almost never hear him make a mistake. So Spain is, as we mentioned, built off of this Spanish guitar concerto, and it's considered one of his earliest examples of a clear Spanish influence in his piano playing. It's not the only one. I would point to an earlier tune. If we go back to 1968, the same year his debut album comes out of Tones for Jones Bones, later that year he records an album that will become one of his most essential, beloved albums, a personal favorite of mine, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. There is a track on there called Steps, and that goes into a drum solo by the great Roy Haynes. And that segues into another tune called What Was. And they're all on the same track. So What Was is kind of buried in there. Um, if you don't listen closely, you might miss it. But um, I detect a clear Spanish flamenco influence. This could almost be played by flamenco guitars, except it is played by a jazz piano trio. So check it out. This is 1968's What Was. And imagine this played by flamenco guitars. Do you hear that? That sounds like flamenco jazz piano to me. 
that type of chord progression, that flamenco flavor, it shows up on other compositions as well. Uh, there's a song, Windows, one of his most famous compositions, which is on several albums with different versions. But it's also on Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, uh, one of my favorite versions that appears as a bonus track. And it has that same type of progression. Back to Return to Forever. Before Spain, the debut Return to Forever album, it closes with another compilation tune. It's about 25 minutes long. It's two songs, Some Time Ago slash La Fiesta. Let's hear a bit of La Fiesta. Isn't that cool? The Spanishness is even more enhanced than on the earlier tune, What Was. That has a very similar progression, but this time we have a melody that is even more clearly flamenco-influenced, and the percussion, I believe those are real castanets, which are the same uh, instruments used in actual flamenco performances. And for some reason, this gets me thinking of a funny subject, um... Not always funny, but in this case, you know, the topic of cultural appropriation. Um, nobody would ever say that about Chick Corea because he does it so well. It doesn't matter that he's not Spanish. It doesn't matter that he's an Italian-American guy from Boston. He captured the spirit of Spain in these compositions. And if great artists from Spain like Paco de Lucia, the late great flamenco guitarist, all approve. No one's going to argue. And um, it's not hard to hear guitars in that composition. You can easily imagine it. And you don't even have to. I'm going to play you a version with a guitarist who played in a flamenco ensemble with Paco de Lucia. Here he's playing in a duo with uh, Michelle Camillo, the great uh, Dominican piano player, certainly a disciple of Chick Corea. And uh, the guitarist's name is Tomatillo. And this is Tomatillo and Michelle Camillo doing their version of La Fiesta. Just a quick sample. Check it out. So Chick was inspired by flamenco music 
came up with this piece that worked great on Fender Rhodes, was listened to by an actual flamenco guitarist, Tomatillo, and a Latin pianist, uh, Michelle Camillo, and they did their own thing with it. Just a really cool example of how Chick's music works in different settings. So I want to play one more example of the Spanish side of Chick Corea from an album appropriately entitled My Spanish Heart. And this was after Return to Forever had done several albums and uh, Chick had basically moved on and uh, was just uh, putting together different ensembles for each album. So this lineup includes Jean-Luc Ponty, the uh, great French violinist who played for Frank Zappa and had some hits on his own. And we talked about him in the Eddie Van Halen episode because he had a track that featured Alan Holdsworth on guitar that seemed like it was an influence on Eddie Van Halen. So this is uh, Chick Corea with Jean-Luc Ponty, a tune called Armando's Rumba. So cool. That's another personal favorite track right there. And again, this was after the Return to Forever period and before he started up the electric band in the 80s. But we can't overlook the later version of Return to Forever, specifically the one with Aldemiola, the great Aldemiola. So um, let's take a listen to that right now. Very interesting, right? That's from an album called No Mystery. Um, Al Dumiola on guitar. Very young Al Dumiola. I think he's only like 19 or 20 right there. Uh, Chick had a sense of humor. And that song is called Excerpt from the First Movement of Heavy Metal. 
I don't know if he's referring to heavy metal the music, which at that time means you know Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, or uh, the magazine, which I think was around then. But uh, yeah, completely different from the earlier versions of Return to Forever, which had the same rhythm section, Lenny White and Stanley Clark. But now Stanley Clark's playing electric bass. You've got Al's electric guitar. And Chick's rig is expanded with Moogs and Oberheims. And it's more like Rick Wakeman of Yes or uh, Keith Emerson. Let's hear a little bit of one more track from that same 1975 album, uh, the title track. This one, I think, would appeal to fans of Rush. Check it out. different right doesn't even sound like the same artist and i like that i like uh, an artist musician who can go different places and maybe not even sound like uh, the person you thought it was um in, in that sense he's been a big inspiration to me i'll talk more about that before we wrap up the episode and the funny thing is he never left any of the other music too he was always able to return to some of the earlier stuff that we played, uh, the more Spanish-influenced stuff, the acoustic jazz piano stuff, but always developing it, and always a number of different projects, just such an inspiration. So the way I discovered Chick Corea was through Al Demiola. I had uh, read about him in magazines, other guitarists had told me about him, and of course I flipped out when I heard his solo albums, so he launched a career built off of uh, Return to Forever, and Chick guested on his debut album, Land of the Midnight Sun. The album closes with this incredible track called Short Tales of the Black Forest. Let me play a little bit of that for you right now. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. We don't have time to listen to the whole track, but I do want to play more of the song. It goes so many places. It has so many great sections. It really feels like you're traveling through the Black Forest. This is one of the first times I heard music that felt like it was uh, taking me on a journey. And I'm going to play a later part of the song. This goes into a section that is so technically skilled. I mean, this sort of kind of solidifies... Mr. Demiola as one of the best pickers in the business. Check it out. Mm-hmm. 
so many great sections. And I'm going to play a little bit more of it. But I want to point out that when I first heard it, I thought it was all done at one time. It really sounds like it. Having uh, experienced ears and being able to listen microscopically after much experience in the studio, I can tell that some parts were overdubbed, uh, especially the percussion. There's no way <laughs> that percussion could be played while they're both playing um, guitar and piano, respectively. But it works beautifully. That's not to take anything away from it. And um, here's one finale section that just blows my mind. So check this out. Wow. So now they're back to the opening theme. And where can you go from there? You know, they, they should just stop. Guys, you got it. You got it. But no, they keep going. They go into whole other sections and there's additional finales. And it's uh, amazing. It's almost overwhelming, but it works beautifully. Uh, I think it's a real masterpiece. And again, this was how I first discovered Chick Corea because I had this album by Al Mula, And that's Chick's composition, Short Tales of the Black Forest, which many people know from the version that's on Friday night in San Francisco, the guitar trio of Demiola, De Lucia, and McLaughlin. And I've spoken about this on prior episodes. I like that version. It's fine. But to me, this is the ultimate version. It has the elegance of classical piano, thanks to Chick playing acoustic piano instead of the three guitars, which I feel like sometimes devolves into uh, a contest. <laughs> but with all due respect. Okay, guys, we are at the hour point. Normally, I'd be wrapping up the episode now or 10 or 20 minutes earlier. But in order to properly pay tribute to the great Chick Corea, we need to keep going. And again, we're going to do the best we can in one episode. So the track you heard before came out in 1977, Short Tales of the Black Forest, on Al Demiola's debut. So from about 77 to the early 80s, Chick is in an experimental phase. Prior to this, he always had a lineup that was fairly consistent for a few years at a time. The band with Al and Stanley Clark and Lenny White, you know, the classic Return to Forever. I guess that's considered the quintessential Return to Forever. They released a number of records and were together a number of years. The same is true of Return to Forever 1.0, which also had the same rhythm section of Stanley Clark and Lenny White on bass and drums, respectively, but with Ayrto on percussion and Flora Parim on vocals, as well as Joe Farrell on sax and flutes. Yet, from the late 70s until about the mid-80s, there is no regular band for the first time in a long time. Every Czech Korea album seems to have a different lineup. Sometimes there's multiple lineups on each song. The breakup of the classic Return to Forever happened partially, according to Al Demiola, because they were getting too big. They were headed towards playing arenas, you know, unheard of for a jazz band. 
And um, each guy had a record contract as well. Um, Chick was nurturing everybody. He wanted everybody to shine uh, to his credit, but it became a problem. So this is what Al Demiola says in the current issue of Guitar World. Uh, the question is, what did you learn from Chick? Quote, what I got from Chick was a tremendous amount. I mean, I looked up to him as a role model. He was a mentor. He had an improvisatory style of playing, but his sense of timing and syncopation and also his writing was amazing. A lot of it worked its way into inspiring me as a writer. He wanted us all to write. I thought it was hugely bizarre. He pushed us to write, which I think was the downfall in Return to Forever, because once we became well-known, I think Chick had a problem. Uh, we were the first band in the world that I think had a group contract and then solo contracts for each guy. And then the next question. So in your opinion, the fact that you all became writers and well-known individually led to the dissolution of the classic lineup of Return to Forever with you, Chick, Stanley Clark, and Lenny White. Quote, I think so. We were just about heading towards playing Madison Square Garden type venues when Chick decided to just turn completely in another direction, which on the one hand was upsetting, but on the other hand, it was like, well, we'll just continue with our own careers. Unquote. And continue with our own careers, they did. Uh, they all had very successful careers. Al went platinum on more than one record, I believe. You know, that was unheard of back then, except for Jeff Beck, and especially unheard of today for instrumental music. My take on it, just from an outsider, is uh, Chick was guilty of being too nurturing and generous <laughs> and uh, didn't want to deal with the drama that came in the wake of that. Who can blame him? I mean, if you're in this situation, it's your band, but suddenly it's blowing up. It's heading towards being the first arena jazz band. And you're dealing with personal drama, creative tensions, egos out of control. And it's not worth it. You could have a better day-to-day -day existence by going back to playing jazz venues and jazz festivals and being able to hire whoever you want for every gig and every recording session. It's the flip side that comes with having a band of personalities. There is this dependence and suddenly you're susceptible to all uh, the issues that those personalities may bring to the situation. And success often exacerbates those tensions. So I never met Chick other than a quick hello at the Blue Note. I didn't know him, but I just get the sense, you know, he wasn't about that. You know, he had enough of uh, his band being at the visibility and commercial level of big rock and pop groups. And it was just so stressful. You know, he could, he'd rather just be comfortable, make less money, but be in a better creative headspace. That's the sense I get. And it says a lot about the Chick Corea story. You know, brilliant, brilliant artist, but no feuds. He doesn't have time for feuds and drama, and there was no substance abuse or other demons. There's really, like, nothing controversial about Chick Corea, is there? Well, I was debating bringing this up, my friends. I'm not going to dwell on it. It's a little thing, just a little thing, but it is part of the story, and I feel like it's doing a disservice to ignore it. Let's put it this way. Chick had something in common with a couple well-known celebrities named Tom Cruise and John Travolta 
they're probably the best known examples. Also, Kirstie Alley, the late, great Isaac Hayes. I think you see where I'm going with this. I always loved the name of the band, Return to Forever, right? I was kind of shocked to find out it's a Scientology term. <laughs> so are uh, a bunch of the song titles, Vulcan Worlds. That's like something out of Battlefield Earth, the L. Ron Hubbard science fiction novel that John Travolta made a film out of. Where Have I Known You Before? The album title seems to be referring to a concept of past lives from the best-selling book by L. Ron Hubbard, Dianetics. Now, I want to keep things positive, so I can already hear some folks getting irritated, you know. How dare you talk about this? It was only last month that he died. Although he and his fellow church members wouldn't say he died, they'd say he dropped his body, quote-unquote. How do I know this, you may ask? I uh, have a confession to make. I have mentioned this before. I once took a course from the Church of Scientology, and it was about studying, and I found it very helpful. I have since read interviews with others. Um, Jerry Seinfeld said the same thing. It sounded, He described it. It sounded like the exact same course, but he said he got what he needed out of it, and he moved on. I pretty much did the same thing. I thought the whole, uh, the people administering this just struck me as really weird and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I was very young at the time, but I think I was put off because they seemed like they wouldn't take no for an answer. I did the course that, you know, they want you to do another course and they want to keep you involved. Now I just saw it as aggressive sales tactics and it was very off putting. I didn't know anything else about the organization. We didn't have these documentaries that we have now, like the Alex Gibney film on Scientology or the Leia Rimini series. But it was enough. It was just a feeling. And I moved on. And it was a learning experience. And I learned to seek out motivational and self-help material that is not connected to religion or any organization that operates like a religion or a cult of personality. And I only bring this up because this was an actual experience I had. And it was a direct result of being a fan of Chick Corea at a young age and seeing him mention this somewhere. And it got me interested, but I also lost interest as soon as I gained interest. But I did learn something in the process. I learned a lot of things. So I don't blame him. In fact, I'm going to defend him in the sense that the same way Chick was drama averse when it came to Return to Forever, the band, I think it's the same with Scientology. He, I never saw him engage in one of these PR battles. You know, you sometimes see Cruz and others. Uh, going on the attack for you know the latest expose on Scientology, and you know he's, he's had Chick had nothing to do with that. If you follow him on social media, you would not even know he's not talking about that. He's talking about his craft, um, the musicians he interacts with, his friends. He, see, it just seems very normal in a way. He's like this model. Scientologist. Unfortunately, that's not representative of other ones that I've seen. You know the ones I'm talking about. Their vocabulary is filled with jargon and their social circles tend to be limited to fellow members. Chick was not like that at all. And he was just surrounded by all types of people that had nothing to do with Scientology. So it's, it's just a footnote and that's enough of that. 
Let's get back to the music. So I mentioned earlier that in the late 70s, following the dissolution of Return to Forever, the uh, quartet, jazz rock, highly popular version with some drama, (laughs) Uh, Chick understandably resisted having a regular band for a number of years. He went through an experimental phase. There were albums with Leprechaun themes, um, an Alice in Wonderland themed album. You know, it's kind of like looking at a rock band and seeing like different experimentations. Oh, yeah, they tried the flower power thing here. They tried the psychedelic thing here. They kind of went prog here. And uh, throughout all these albums, there are um, references to some of the earlier music. You can find songs that sound like they could have been on some of the earlier acoustic piano albums. Uh, There are Spanish experimentations throughout Sometimes it gets really experimental with choirs and uh, other odd instruments. Uh, There's an album, Touchstone, where uh, Paco de Lucia plays with him. And uh, the quartet, Return to Forever, is actually reunited on one song. And yeah, every album is different. So enter the 80s. And by now, a a new sound is emerging. It's uh, labeled Contemporary Jazz. And if you think of groups like Spyro Gyra, the Rippingtons, the Yellow Jackets, uh, David Sanborn, the saxophonist, is having hits with this type of music. On the flip side, you've got artists like Kenny G, (laughs) who I've actually met, and he's got a great sense of humor, and uh, we'll talk about him another time. The point is, uh, there's a whole new genre, and some of the musicians who play it are jazz musicians, but it's not really jazz. It's almost more instrumental pop. And there are radio stations, uh, sometimes called smooth jazz stations. That becomes a thing, smooth jazz. And you're hearing this music in hotel lobbies, on cruises, in restaurants, in banks. (laughs) And it's kind of weird because some of these musicians, some, were doing cutting-edge jazz rock in the 70s. And now you've got this cleaned up, polished version of electric jazz, but it's not for the same audience at all. So my personal opinion on, let's just call it contemporary jazz. I don't really listen to it. I have no desire to play it. (laughs) I think some of it works, some of it doesn't. Occasionally, I'm surprised, and there's some really cool moments. Um, So some of the coolest moments, I think, happen uh, when Chick Corea enters this landscape. And he forms his first regular band since Return to Forever. And uh, by all accounts, it seems like he's having fun again. (laughs) Whatever baggage there was left over from Return to Forever and that experience is gone. And uh, he wants to keep this band together. It's a bunch of younger players. And it's called the Chick Corea Electric Band, Electric with a K. And it becomes uh, his first long-lasting project since Return to Forever and actually lasts longer. So uh, let's play a little bit of that. Uh, This is an early cut from the Chick Corea Electric Band.
you got to give it up for the playing. Uh, the playing's spectacular. I have to be honest, the, the sounds are not really for me. I'm just a bigger fan of 70s jazz rock. This is very 80s. This sounds like some of the folks with uh, the Return to Forever chops got behind the instruments at a Toto recording session and played. But it works. You know, it works for what it is. Um, one of the reasons I chose that track is because the guitarist is one of my favorites, Scott Henderson, a guitarist guitarist. But he's only on that one track. The track's called King Cockroach. And that's off the self-titled debut Chikoria Electric Band in 1986. So overall, some of this music, I think, works better than others. Some of it's very kind of, you know, relaxing. It'll work great in a restaurant. But there are moments where you can find where it rocks pretty hard. So I want to play you one of those moments. Um, this is on a later album, Inside Out. So by now, Chick Corea has found the core of the Chick Corea electric band. And this will be the band. Even recently, in the last few years, he's um, done electric band tours and gotten this exact same lineup together. So he brought in a sax player that wasn't on the early, the first album. Um, the sax player is Eric Marienthal. And a new guitar player from Australia, uh, Frank Gambali, who's also a household name to guitarists, who has this great sweep-picking technique. And, of course, I, I should mention that the rhythm section would become very influential in their own right, even though they're, they're pretty young at this time. But that's um, Dave Weckl on the drums and John Patitucci on the bass. So let's hear this other track. Um, this is from an album called Inside Out, and this features Frank Gambale on guitar. That's pretty cool. Kind of reminds me of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer a little bit, only almost more complex and technical. So this project lasts through much of the 90s, and it's not the only thing he's doing. You know, he continues to do piano music. He does an acoustic band, also spelled with a K, acoustic, with this rhythm section, uh, Patitucci and Weckl, with Patitucci on upright bass, who's an incredible upright bassist as well. And uh, solo albums, um, he starts doing these duo albums. Well, he'd been doing duos with the vibraphonist Gary Burton since the 70s, so he does more of those, but he unites with players as diverse as Yo-Yo Ma and Bobby McFerrin. In fact, the piece that kicked off this episode was from a live track with Bobby McFerrin, them going into Spain, believe it or not. Um, let me play a bit of that right now, because that's one of my favorite albums, period. Did 
That is one of my favorite versions of that song. And that's a song that's been recorded many times by Chick and others. Chick Corea and Bobby McFerrin from the album Play in 1990. If you thought Bobby McFerrin was just the don't worry, be happy guy, little do you know. Uh, Chick and Bobby McFerrin would end up doing multiple projects together. And they sound like a full band. I mean, they're both like multiple people in one person and just so creative. I should mention one other interesting duo partner of Czechs, which is the banjo player Bela Fleck. So there's so many albums. You know, he's just so active <laughs> at all times. You just can't keep track, and we can't cover it all. Um, but just one final project I want to mention of his, and this is one that appears in the late 90s and goes into the 2000s. So by this point, you know he's an icon, He's changed music. His reputation is sealed. But one gets the sense that the serious jazz crowd, for lack of a better word, has sort of moved on. You know, they still study and deeply respect uh, his early work. Tones for Jones Bones. Now he sings, now he sobs. And it's not as though he hasn't been getting coverage in jazz magazines like Downbeat and Jazzes and Jazz Times and so forth. But one gets the sense that by this time, Chick was so identified with sort of contemporary jazz, instrumental pop, it started to overshadow the other sides. So the aficionados of jazz, specifically fans of modern jazz piano, you know, they're listening to Brad Meldow at this point, VJ Iyer, Jason Lindner, uh, Danilo Perez from Panama, the late Kenny Kirkland, Ethan Iverson, to name just a few. They still appreciate Chick's early work, but he's not really on their radar. That changes overnight. All of a sudden, Chick comes out with this album um, called Change, ironically, that harkens back to his earlier work and modernizes it. And he's got this ensemble of players, including Steve Wilson, not the British musician, Stephen Wilson, but Steve Wilson, the horn player, Steve Davis, Avishai Cohen, the great Israeli bass player, Jeff Ballard, the great drummer. So these are all the cutting edge leading lights of forward thinking jazz at this time in New York. And with this ensemble, Suddenly, the hottest thing in serious jazz circles is Chick. He's back. (laughs) Not that he ever really left, but he is what's happening now. So let's hear a little bit of this band uh, origin. It's Chick Corea. 
so good. And very different from the music we were listening to just a little while ago with the uh, synthesizers and pounding drums and screaming guitars. But, you know, he makes it all work. And I think Origin was the first of this type of acoustic ensemble that really became a unit. You know, several albums, tours. I saw this band a few times, and it was incredible. And I saw the reunited Return to Forever in 2008, the uh, classic one with Demiola, Clark, White, and Chick. And then the, I, a few other times since then, the, the last time I saw him, he had this residency. He'd, he would do these every few years at the Blue Note, and he would just take over for a week or two. And a different group every night. The group I saw, thanks to um, my publicist, Carla Parisi. Thank you, Carla, who uh, represented Chick uh, a little bit over these last few years. The last show I saw was there, uh, Chick with John McLaughlin. And Lenny Wyatt on drums and Victor Wooten on bass. I will never forget it. So I want to try to wrap this up at 90 minutes or shortly thereafter. So remember earlier in the episode, we spoke about Chick taking questions from all over the world in dressing rooms and hotel rooms while on tour as part of the Instagram series. Hashtag Ask Chick. Let's go out with a few more of those. Here is Chick in his own words. Okay, guys. So uh, uh, there's a bunch of great questions that were sent in, and uh, I'd love to answer them all. I got uh, I, I got a couple of them up here, though. Let's see. Um, here's a real interesting one. I'm going to do this real quick. Uh, it says, "How can you make a tritone sound beautiful?" Well, first of all, for those of you that don't know what a tritone is, it is, is uh, half an octave, and it's up to you to make it sound beautiful. It's just, it's melodic. Uh, the, the notes uh, on the piano and the notes that we have from heaven and the that are in the physical universe are given to us, uh, but we have to make them our own, make them sound beautiful. The beauty comes from you, man. Okay, here's one more from uh, Mamorshman Music. Uh, he says, I want to be more innovative in playing and composing jazz song and so forth, and, and he asked, asked me about that. You know, I've, I've been asked that a number of times, being, being innovative. All that means is being yourself, really. That's all, it, all innovative means. If you can just trust your own judgment in, in uh, what you make, and then just, just keep working, and not, not uh, you know, take in whatever you want to take in in your environment, listen to whatever you want to listen to, be interested in whatever you want to be interested in, but but basically have your own independent attitude toward music and toward life and just be yourself. And then you'll be innovative. You can, like for instance right now, I'm gonna do that for you. I don't know how innovative that is, but it's fun talking to you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, here's another one of, of um, how do you attack a classical piece that you want to improvise over, specifically something like Scarlatti or Bach, and so I was just talking to a, uh, another another friend about 
uh, getting into Scarlatti, for instance. So, well, there's the score, and of course, first thing is to learn the notes to the score. Uh, so I make sure I, I, know, I know the piece. And then there's a trill there, you have to see what that means, and so forth. I, one of the ways I do it is before I listen to other people doing their renditions of this piece, I try to understand the score directly from the composer himself. This is Scarlatti's score, so I need to see what, what does this trill mean, uh, how can I interpret it, what would he have done, and so forth, you know. But like in, in this particular one, in the second part, I found, I'll start here in the second part. this one bar uh, with repeats on it because I saw that as an opportunity to improvise within, within this particular piece. So, so uh, starting a little bit before right there. Now I keep repeating the left hand and make melodies on the top of it. some point, continue on. And so forth, and continue on. And here's another uh, opportunity to improvise, which was actually the same as, as this one. It's after this phrase. It's, it's the same phrasing. Then at some point I go go here and continue on. Okay, that's uh, that's. That's one approach of the way you can get into um, interpreting a piece of classical music. This wraps up episode 13 of Moods and Modes. More like an episode and a half. I don't think we've done a single episode this long, although we have done some two-part episodes. This felt like it needed to be done in one. And just one more thought. I didn't make it clear why I feel such a connection to Chick Corea. Yes, I love a lot of his music, but consider that... Some of it is so radically different 
It can be hard to believe that the same person playing this intense jazz rock in Return to Forever is the same guy playing this delicate, classically influenced piano. I relate to that. <laughs> he inspired me to be a musician of multiple types, so I can never thank him enough. Thank you, Chick Korea. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy, Brad Stratton, and Adam Kaplan, with final editing and mixing by Brad Stratton. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Patreon members, for supporting. If you'd like to support us directly, go to patreon.com slash Skolnick. Theme music you're hearing is by the Alex Skolnick Trio. Opening theme was by yours truly. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you once again. Take care and be safe. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. Features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.